Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled A Conversation with Jonathan Hughes. Recorded in 1987, Jonathan Hughes discusses American economic history, why the U.S. prospered in the past, and how to continue that success. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. My name is Jonathan Hughes. I am a professor of economics at Northwestern University. My specialty is economic history. Uh, one adva- this is November uh, 1987, and one great advantage to being an economic historian is that you know when a stock market panic happens that it's not the first time in history that you ever had it, nor will it be the last. You also know that it's very difficult to know the precise causes of these things, especially at first when all you know are the surface symptoms, and the surface symptoms are very similar between episodes like this. And it's a little bit like uh, um, illnesses which cause a fever. If you assumed that all illnesses that caused fevers were the same, you wouldn't be much of a doctor. And I've been a bit ashamed of my profession in the last week to listen to them assume that they understand why this market collapsed the way it did, and on that basis to go ahead and make policy prescriptions, uh, and also uh, to make these as if there had never been one before 1929, or that the only comparison that was relevant was the 1929 episode. Uh, It is a great advantage to have a historical perspective on the economy uh, so that events like this are less terrifying than they are to those who know nothing of the country's financial history. Well, in your work, you've gone back 300 years in the economic history of the United States and uh, you've written several books. Uh, One specific book, The Vital Few, is of interest to me. With which of the individuals covered in that book do you most identify? Hmm. I suppose that I that I most identify with Brigham Young because of the uh, my mother's family background uh, which was uh, Utah Mormon. Uh, Put it another way, Young was among those in the book with whom I had the least difficulty trying to find an automatic affinity. I would, the same was true of Mariner Eccles, the same was true of Henry Ford, because he's a, a, a person with a Midwesterner with Midwestern values, and, and uh, that was also uh, true in my case, coming from where I did in the Western part of the United States, the values are very similar to a state in, I came from Idaho. The values are very similar to a state like Indiana. Uh, What is most difficult for somebody with a background like mine is to be natural in the environment of somebody like Pierpont Morgan, or what's the most difficult problem of all, I suppose, was uh, when I wrote about Mary Switzer, a woman. I felt a total failure at the end of that. that, uh, I wasn't really very good understanding women. But in, with regard to Brigham Young, you certainly would agree that 
that, that there was at the heart of his uh, effort something very much the same as uh, Pierpont Morgan and many other uh, uh, highly revered people. There's a common thread there of energy or something. Oh, well, the, it is the, you hardly ever found a successful uh, big-time American tycoon who was lazy. Uh, characteristic of them in the past or now is uh, an almost comical amount of energy. Uh, Pierpont Morgan seemed to be lethargic uh, physically, but in fact he was robust until old age physically and uh, mentally he was robust all the time. His mind, uh, he couldn't stand not to have his mind work. That was the reason for the solitaire games that he played endlessly uh, through his lifetime. They all were driven in one sense, and that is a, uh, a great amount, probably a more than normal amount of energy. Uh, was, there, was, there a, was power a factor in Brigham Young's case? It's hard to say no, because uh, from the time he first enters the picture, he's either a uh, kind of lieutenant of the founder of the Mormon Church, uh, or else he is in power. And as long as he remained in power, uh, he exercised it every day, and he exercised it, for the most part, as far as one knows, uh, with relish. He liked, he was self-confident. Uh, he liked his own abilities, he believed he was just, uh, and he believed that what he thought was best for his people would be best for his people. So he's a perfect uh, example of somebody for whom the exercise of power was a perfectly natural thing. Uh, others, uh, uh, there have been entrepreneurs who were diffident about the use of power, the Harriman, for example, uh, preferred to stay behind the scenes, preferred not to be uh, easily associated with the consequences of his own power. So I don't think it's a constant thing. I think that what is true of them is not so much love of power as it is a, uh, a belief in their own abilities, a, a desire to operate uh, in areas where they believe they understand the world and no one else does. Uh, and the pursuit of the advantages that come from this, what economists call the entrepreneurial rent, uh, is the motivation for people of self-confidence uh, with original minds and a lot of energy to, uh, you know, go for it. Uh, one can't imagine uh, very easily a, a, a diffident entrepreneur. I mean, even someone who's a, a socially uh, a shrinking violet like Henry Ford, uh, there was nothing diffident about the way he wielded his power. He used it. He understood it, and he used it. Let's go back in time uh, for a moment. What were your childhood interests? Mine. You have to remember where I grew up. I grew up in Idaho at a time uh, when there was a great deal of freedom in nature. 
so I was very much interested in, in uh, the kind of freewheeling life of a country boy in a beautiful place like that where mostly it's just wild. Was then and still is, for that matter. Did you have a childhood hero? Did I have a childhood hero? Uh, not really, no. No. Uh, you didn't need that sort of thing in a uh, world uh, surrounded by uh, visible activity, visible constructive activity uh, all through your youth and, and uh, uh, an understanding from looking at it that things that happen are accomplished by people and not market forces in the abstract. And without people, nothing gets done. Uh, so there was more than one. I mean, you saw people doing things, making a difference in the world uh, through their own actions all the time. It was lightly populated. You could see it. They were making, uh, changing nature into farms, changing nature into towns, uh, into irrigation systems. And it was there in front of your eyes. It was not a mystery. That was all, if you would, action-oriented. How did you move from that kind of background toward the uh, contemplative uh, world of education? Well, I was only ever partly contemplative. I still uh, ski and do outdoor things. Um, well, that that's a... Uh, it's a kind of a crazy story. I, 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 uh, I won a Rhodes Scholarship when I was at the University of Washington. I, at, the, at that time, I was working with the Alaska Packers in the Bering Sea, uh, and I was just transfixed by that industry. Eskimos, whales, ships. Uh, it was a wonderful thing. And, but I felt that I had to, that it would be stupid to have won a Rhodes Scholarship and not taken it. So I went off to Oxford uh, in the fall of 1952 and left Alaska, which I dearly loved, uh, in my place of employment behind me. Uh, and once there, of course, you must do as they do. And uh, the University of Oxford, the ancient university, has all of its own rules, uh, its own ways, its own culture. Uh, and if you <laughs> fit into that culture, then you, if, you're, if you succeed, you will, to some extent, be a scholar. And so I did, and that's how it came out. Uh, I became an economic historian, though, by different routes, quite uh, amusing. Uh, I got there, and I was uh, interviewed by J.R. Hicks, who's a Nobel laureate in economics, uh, Sir John Hicks now. Uh, I was frightened to death to be interviewed by the great man, and he was going to decide what part of the university I would be put into. He had a great deal of power then. He was the Drummond professor, the university professor. Uh, I went to see him, and he said, where have you come from? I said, the United States. And he says, no, no, what part? I said, Alaska. So we talked about Alaska for two hours, and then he said, you should be an economic historian and you should work with Professor Habakkuk, and that was that. That was the, <laughs> that did, was the way my future was determined. Did he ever explain the logic? He, he, although he himself is a theoretical economist, perhaps the greatest one of this century, he 
was deeply interested, always was deeply interested in the facts of economic life, more so than most economists could imagine. I mean, he spent his spare time wandering around uh, ruins of cities trying to find the market sector of the town by the city gate and so on. Uh, and um, he just wanted to encourage people to do uh, empirical work. And he had this taste for history because he had to some extent been a classics uh, a student in, when he was in school. And he was aware that history, human history, the history of the species is some thousands of years old and that uh, things that we think were recently invented uh, were not in fact recently invented, been around a long time. And, and uh, he was interested in all these matters. And whenever he could, push someone off into doing a historical work he did. He's done some himself, as a matter of fact, and wrote a little book uh, on economic history. At the University of Washington, before <coughs> Oxford, was your major economics or history or neither? Economics. Economics. I had two, only two courses there in economic history. Uh, I was very fortunate in who was teaching the two young, very young men at the time. Both have become very eminent uh, economic historians. Uh, they were very good, very scholarly, uh, uh, pushed us to do original work even then. So I knew that, uh, that the truth is something we find, and it's not something that just uh, happens because of this. But most of my courses were theoretical. I had more courses in the history of economic theory than I had in economic history. I only had two at the University of Washington in economic history. I had the reason, it would never have occurred to me to be an economic historian, uh, but Professor Hicks insisted. <laughs> How do you define economics? Well, you know, there are there's the joke definition of it from Alfred Marshall that it's the study of man in the everyday business of life. Uh, there is the standard one in uh, all the textbooks that it's the study of the allocation of scarce resources among competing uses. Um, in fact, economics uh, is, is a very odd subject. Uh, it, most of its theory is not based on any known facts. It was developed mostly without any, any uh, uh, reference to any known facts. Uh, someone like Jevons in the theory of marginal utility. I mean, he never watched somebody eating a loaf of bread piece by piece and trying to measure the additional utility got from the eater by every slice. Uh, he deduced this on general principles. Um, most of economics in terms of theory is that way. So it's a, to me, has always been a kind of a dangerous subject. One constantly warns that, uh, warns one's students, that what is there in theory may not ever be there in the real world because the theory is based upon simplifying assumptions that are so drastic uh, that it's, no one would ever take it as a guide. I mean, you couldn't take economics as a guide uh, to something like a stock market crash, just theory when you're in a world that has no institutions, no people, and no time. Do uh, people confuse business and economics? Uh, 
Yes, Kenneth Bolding made a very nice uh, uh, comment on that. He said that economics is to business as the theory of sound is to music. <laughs> Can a layman consider economics, uh, uh, well, I think of it as the study of choice, what I choose, why I choose, when I, and when I choose? That make any sense? Yeah, sure. People do it that way. Um, it's a, a very restricted part of, very restricted part of it. You, you go from, uh, you know, individual selection to the market in a particular commodity, and that's about as far as that approach to it goes. It does explain a lot of what's going on uh, in your life. But it tells you nothing about production. It tells you very little about the nature of uh, production costs. Uh, it tells you very little about the consequences of uh, anything about macroeconomics, for example, debts, deficits, balance of payments, uh, gross national product, all that stuff is, is uh, in aggregate, you can't get to directly from where you start with yourself looking at your own income and your own preferences. If we divide human activity into categories, religion, economics, government, etc., do you have a personal view as to which is uh, the most important, the most enlightening? Well, a phenomenon you see is that you constantly see people individually and en masse engaged in activity which uh, makes them poorer. Uh, my old teacher Doug North says about the def best definition you can think of of ideology is the belief that will cause a person to act against his own self-interest. Uh, and you do see that commonly. Uh, and in fact, you see it so commonly that uh, if you if someone comes out and is openly and nakedly trying to better himself in the world at everybody else's expense, uh, in fact, uh, uh, despite the conventional wisdom, we really frown on that. So, uh, doesn't that depend? Religion or ideology, whatever it is, is a thing which, in fact, human beings act on a lot, even when it even when it is going to impoverish them. And by religion, in this case, you mean a, you don't mean necessarily formal worship. Well, I want to stay out of trouble on this one. <laughs> We've had in the case Jonestown down in South America. We had the case of a whole religious community, Americans, committing suicide. They certainly were not acting in their own self-interest. They took their leader with them, or he took them. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to define what a religious belief is, whether it is uh, something which is uh, structured, uh, or whether it uh, if you have two kinds of, of people who are religious, one is a believer in a completely structured system. Uh, the other is you know handles snakes and talks in tongues and whatever. Uh, you're pretty hard pressed to compare the intensity of religious belief between the two people. So it's kind of fruitless to 
to uh, try to define uh, religion very closely. Is there any reliable corollary between the uh, intensity of religious commitment and the uh, success of economic activity? I don't think so. I think you, you, you know, give you plenty of examples of, of it working both ways. In the long run, a religion which, whose uh, uh, functioning continuously produces economic catastrophe will finally run out of adherence. Uh, but in the short run, uh, no. In the short run, uh, people will engage in the craziest things on the basis of religion or attracted to the craziest things on the basis of religion. It makes no, no difference to them whether it's going to end up in bankruptcy court or not. But as I say, in the long run, if you have a religion which, which uh, snuffs out both the possibility of economic achievement uh, and economic interest, too, then uh, that religion will not last, simply because it takes people to have a religion. But the religion, uh, re the religious ideas that are defined as, quote, the Protestant work ethic have proved to be uh, very congenial to economic uh, activity. Yes, but you have to remember who it is that thought that up. You know, Max Weber, uh, is, would he necessarily have to also define the Japanese as Protestants? Uh, a lot of the, the uh, really successful areas of activity in Europe along the Rhineland uh, were Roman Catholic, as in northern Italy, in the towns of northern Italy. Uh, I don't think that's a very good... Uh, I think he had something there that the places in, in Europe which produced rapid economic growth after the 15th century, or after the 16th century, rather, tended to be in Protestant countries. Also, it happened to be the case that the Roman Catholic countries and the, the uh, Orthodox Catholic countries uh, included the most backward governments in European history. Uh, so I think history, uh, other things, made Weber's thesis look a lot better than it really is. As I say, you have a great counterexample uh, with uh, uh, the Japanese. But there must be vision involved, though, isn't there? Uh, it, it seemed to me there must be a goal, whether that goal is defined in religious terms or some other way, in order to drive the economic machine. Well, it helps, you know. If you, if you uh, are a believer in, the, in, in, for example, in the doctrine of the visible elect, uh, riches are Christ-like, then, uh, and, and you care for the esteem of your uh, fellow man, you'll try to become rich. And if you believe that uh, the baubles of this world are a sham and a delusion, and that the only worthy life is one of uh, deep, uh, unbroken religious contemplation, and then you go for the life of total poverty, uh, a monk living in a cave in the desert, that's obviously not very good for economic development. Your specialty, the economic history of the United States, 
were there founding fathers in a business sense? Well, you know, every single one of the original colonies was a separate business venture. They were uh, chartered monopolies from the crown, but they were not uh, organized or financed by the royal authority. They were private companies. Uh, in that regard, the first uh, bailout in history, American history, was when the Virginia Company finally went under in the, in the 1620s and, and uh, the, the, I believe it was the 1620s, and the, the, the uh, king took it over in order to keep it from foundering altogether. But they were all uh, individual business enterprises, and yes, if you go back and go right through the colonies, you'll find over and over individual uh, businessmen, uh, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, uh, who went to work in the colonies uh, for their own uh, particular reasons, very, very widely differing reasons, uh, and it was their enterprise that made the, uh, the systems go. So yes, there were, right from the beginning, uh, identifiable business leaders. They tend to be, uh, by our standards, very restricted in their beliefs about uh, things like uh, a free enterprise, but in Governor Bradford's journals, he discusses the, the end of the, of the uh, experiment with uh, communism in Plymouth Colony. Uh, and there the arguments in favor of communality in property and in the assignment of labor and the distribution of wealth and income was religious. Uh, and yet you see reading his journal that he learns a lesson, a very valuable lesson, that the way to make the colony grow is to have free riding stop. And it's much easier to have free riding stop by allowing individuals to keep the fruits of their labor than it is to try to force them into the field with a black snake whip. So he very quickly gives up the idea of force as a way of saving Plymouth Colony and they begin, as in modern Chinese agriculture, they begin just allowing those who contribute to keep what they produce. And he said it was very remarkable. Women took their babies into the fields uh, to work with them and so on. There's a uh, interesting aspect to that, if I understand correctly, and that is that the majority of the settlers at New Plymouth were not uh, committed to the uh, religious beliefs of those that we've come to call the pilgrims. Uh, so it would seem to me that Bradford also was providing a seed that motivated those who were not there uh, as a part of their religious commitment. Yes, well, of course, they, they had a, they intended to, uh, I've forgotten just exactly the distribution now, but I think there were more indentured servants uh, in Plymouth than there were uh, free adults. Uh, they intended to provide for the indentured servants, and heaven knows what their religious beliefs were. I mean, they were there because that was better than being uh, uh, left behind in prison in England. Uh, 
or wherever uh, they had, whatever circumstances had produced uh, a situation in their lives where they'd be better off to sell their freedom for seven years than not. So what was they, the? I'm not surprised that, that, that there is a finding that these people were not uh, devoted to the weird uh, religious principles of the Leiden exiles. Yes, they, uh, they called themselves the saints, incidentally. Right, not yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> what, was the, uh, what was the first important business activity in North America? It had to be, it depends on what you mean by important. I mean, after all, there were people fishing off the, the coasts of, of uh, the North American colonies a long time before there was ever any, any uh, colony planted. But once they planted the colony, there's no doubt that the first order of any importance, because there was nothing else, nothing, there, were no, there was no gold, no silver, was extractive industry, either agriculture or uh, uh, fur trading with the Indians. And then very quickly, of course, in New England, you develop uh, uh, wood products connected with the sea. And in the South, tobacco growing. Now, probably the, the, the biggest, first big bonanza, apart from fishing, was tobacco growing. And it spread out of the south and it's still to this day. They're still growing tobacco up the Connecticut Valley, as you know. That comes all the way from colonial times. I understand right along with all of this, there was a kind of a second activity in land speculation. Yes, well, we were talking about that earlier today. The, the land tenure that we had it was the same in every single colony. Was a thing called free and common sockage, which we've come to call fee simple now for the reason that many of its features are the same, were the same as the uh, English fee simple, which, which was really a tenure in knighthood originally. Uh, and what this did was make it possible for lands held in that tenure to have the prices determined by bargain. Uh, because anyone could alienate, sell the land anybody else in any amount. And the condition of the sale was in perpetuity. Uh, and the, the crown's right to re-enter to uh, the, the so-called fruits of chivalry, wardship, marriage, and so on, did not adhere to this tenure. So the, the, uh, the land held under this tenure had nearly all the characteristics of chattel goods. Uh, cows or furniture or logs or anything else. Uh, and so, and it was at the time, of course, the most commercial tenure there was in England, and I think originally that the reason for starting off, you start off, you see, with Queen Elizabeth, it's not clear in, in her uh, grant to Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, the grant is in fee simple, and he, of course, is given the power of a, of a small-time king. But the next bunch of, 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 of land grants come from James I, and these are very businesslike. Uh, 
and the tenure is explicitly, it says, it says over and over in every single uh, charter, in free and common sockage only and not in capite or by night service, which means that it won't be military and the king will not make any direct grants to his own, uh, his own uh, tenants in these, in these uh, colonies. Uh, so they begin with a, uh, the most commercial English tenure and it makes the, the American land uh, readily div divisible uh, and saleable. Well, this was unique in terms of even the English traditions at that time. Is that correct? Uh, well, at the beginning, you see in the statute of ten tenures, in 1660, when they bring Charles II back from Holland, they're very anxious to get rid of all the old uh, 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 tenures of chivalry that they can. And so they abolish nearly all of the old tenures, uh, just except for a few minor. They, they keep one, they, the tenure of the serfs. They keep that, allow them to have uh, 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 right to land on the basis of their, their ancestors' names being entered on the rolls of the, of the manors. A copy hold, it's called, a copy of the roll, and they allow the the uh, the church to maintain what lands has got left. I mean, after Henry VIII, after all, they'd been stripped uh, most of their lands, and they allowed uh, petite sergeanty or grand sergeanty, I guess. They allowed uh, the crown to grant its own lands and properties to people for services, but. All the rest of the tenures are changed into free and common sockage. So in a way, they caught up in 1660 with the system they planted in Virginia in the Charter of 1606, which uh, launched the first settlement in 1607. Uh, but a number of, uh, there were a number of restrictions on the land, like uh, primogeniture and entail, which came over here and were practiced in the United States uh, until the Revolution. And they vanished at the time of the revolution, which gave us a very different than history of uh, land tenure and land ownership and development after the revolution because we got rid of both of those and a number of other uh, sort of antiquities in the, in the uh, legal English uh, tenures. Is it fair to say, though, that the basic characteristics of uh, land tenure that uh, were allowed in the, in the colonies were the basis for uh, the ultimate uniqueness of the United States. Well, I believe that, and, and for the simple reason of just numbers, that at first, uh, more than nine out of ten people who were not uh, servants or slaves were landowners. And so the, and moreover, they were landowners without any political rights. So there's a very interesting thing here, uh, that the rights to free action under the, the tenure of free and common sockage first become the rights of Americans by birth in the case of the, the uh, Great Land Ordinance of 1787, which set up the conditions for the the organization of the Northwest Territories 
into governments, which could then proceed from territorial government to state government. But to do this, they had to have voters. Uh, and to get the, the, uh, the deed or title to your land uh, under the ordinance, you had to have a, a document signed by the President of the United States. Uh, the President of the United States was going to take more than five years to send you your deed. Meanwhile, they couldn't wait that long. They had to have elections. So what they did was they ended up doing with property qualifications altogether in the Northwest Ordinances. And here you get, uh, for every person, man, over 21, existing in the Northwest Territories, the rights simply for being born and living that long that were available in the older parts of the United States only to landowners uh, and in the case of New England, uh, landowners with a certain income and uh, in the case of New England, membership also in the Congregational Church. So the, in the case of the history of the Northwest Territories, you have the direct translation of property rights and real property into political rights of Americans, creation and freedom. So it, it, it's very simple there. It, uh, but as time goes on and we develop more, you know, other kinds of businesses, uh, you want to have at least as much right to dispose of the property in those businesses that you have in the disposition of the rights in real property. Why should you want less? Since it's all around you, you know what a workable set of property rights is. You've got it all around you. So why don't you want that in business? And the answer is you do. So it's for that kind of reasoning that I argue that the, the real origin of American capitalism is quite simply in that old English land tenure. A tenure, by the way, whose ultimate origins we don't even understand. Uh, there were Sockage tenures in Doomsday Book, and nobody really knows why. Hmm. So in a sense, it's fair to say that American society rests on an English foundation? It rests on no other. Uh, I suppose the easiest way to understand that is to read, you know, every year when the American Bar Association goes to Runnymede to uh, knock back drinks with the English bar, since they have this common, common legal origin. Uh, we changed a number of things at the time of the Revolution. I mean, we were, after all, English at the time of the American Revolution. A number of things were changed, but not so much that, uh, as I've often said, that if Ben Franklin could walk the streets of America today, he wouldn't know what to make of the political system. But he certainly would know how to transact a land transaction, a land sale, because that has changed very little. And that's the basis. So in, in the area of property, uh, we took the uh, lead of the English uh, as it existed at the point of, of colonial America. When we gained our independence, we then modified it, getting rid of those things that were the most irritable. Only very slightly. Uh, the things that were most irritable in, included primogeniture and entailment of property. And there were a few other things like co-parsonry and so on, which became uh, 
illegal. But the, the, the thing one has to remember about the American independence is the American Revolution, sorry, uh, is that it was a revolution not against the government, which to the colonists meant the government of Pennsylvania, the government of Massachusetts, the government of, uh, uh, of New Hampshire, the government of Virginia. It was a fight with the King of England and Parliament so that when it was over, they had no intention of chucking their governments, which they built themselves, the laws they passed themselves, uh, all the achievements that had been done in the first 150 years uh, of American existence on the frontier. They had no, there was no question that they were going to throw that away. That was theirs, uh, even though it was in its origin. Uh, entirely English because after all there was there was judicial review the rule was that no laws could be passed in the colonies all the colonies were given the right of, of self-government situations for self-government but the rule always was that no laws be passed which would be repugnant to the laws of England the word used so there'd always been judicial review and in fact five percent of all the laws written during the colonial period were overturned by the Board of Trade lawyers, uh, some 400, more than 400 of them. Uh, but the rest of it was the achievement of the Americans themselves, and they had no, no intention of getting rid of it. In the Statement of Resolves in the summer of 1784, the, the Congress demanded all of the rights of free-born Englishmen, <laughs> which they were, in the common law, and as late as 1890, a hundred years after the U.S. Constitution, the Constitution of Maryland still says that it is the right of citizens of that state to the common law of England. We adapted this uh, application of uh, fee simple to property, to real property, and we then, as you said, applied this to all forms of property. Uh, well, the what? property rights. Property rights, the pro yes. The property rights, yes. In, in, did our application speed up that concept of property in Europe, in England? Was there a bounce back from what occurred in the United States? Or was it parallel? I don't think so. Um, I mean, after all, uh, they consider us to be very backward in, in, in a lot of respects. It, it, in France, even in the province of Quebec, they consider us to be feudal. We don't own our land, really, that the state governments own it. If you don't pay your taxes, you're out for the amount of the taxes. Uh, we, the King's Fifth was given up, the idea of uh, any kind of, of uh, royal ownership of underground wealth, uh, was given up. The, the Americans originally wanted to give the, the federal government a cut in any gold mines or whatever would be discovered, but by the time they were discovered, that had long been abandoned. And they consider us to be extremely retrograde in allowing uh, private persons to exploit the wealth of all, which is the wealth under the ground, either in oil or uh, minerals or uh, a private ownership of, of uh, public amenities like uh, beaches, uh, uh, seashores, and so on. That we, we aren't considered to be particularly advanced by Europeans, no.
I think they consider us to be fairly backward. The English certainly do consider us to be a kind of a museum of 18th century English law. What it was was good for us. I mean, we, within that framework, unchanging but adapted to new circumstances, uh, we made a country. In The Vital Few, your book, The Vital Few, you wrote, quote, liberty is still natural to Americans and autocracy is still foreign, unquote. Yes. Would yes. you expand on that observation? An American expects to be free. He's outraged if he finds that he's not. We don't find it natural to have, uh, you know, you have to do is read the letters to the newspapers, any kind of, of uh, tyranny, uh, either petty tyranny uh, at the post office, uh, or, or gross tyranny, uh, abuse of power by the federal government. One expects in this country, uh, within the confines of the civil law, criminal law, to be free to do as one pleases. And we feel very much aggrieved if uh, government regulations or positive law get in the way of that. I mean, the terrible thing is that one of the uh, and I hate to say this in public, but uh, it's in that sense that you understand the, the uh, attitude of Americans about guns. That they uh, have a feeling, even though the Constitution is very specific, says that, you know, in order to encourage a militia, uh, the right to bear arms will not be abridged. But uh, people don't think about the right to bear arms in terms of joining the militia. They think about the right to bear arms as at least a symbolic uh, gesture uh, exercising their independence of action. It, it was always so. I mean, Charles Dickens, when he's over here, was just appalled by all the gunfire and knifings and so on. Uh, we've always been a very violent people, uh, and we consider it part of our freedom. And, uh, one doesn't like that. If you, you know, you'd like to live a quiet life. But it is the case if you, you know, talk to uh, people who, you know, carry shotguns around and pick up trucks and whatever, why they do that. You very quickly discover that, that what they, they're not really trying to terrify law-abiding citizens, they're making a statement about being free. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's kind of a sad commentary, really, that uh, American government should have been such that by the end of the 20th century, uh, a large portion of the American people would prefer to have their own 12-gauge uh, sitting in the back of the car than depend on the local police to protect them from violence. But that is uh, uh, by way of uh, illustration of what I mean by uh, uh, people believing that they're free and that uh, any kind of, of uh, authority exercised over them uh, is somehow illegitimate and somehow an abuse of power. And it, it seems to me that's tied into this uh, entire discussion of land in that it's, uh, it, this sense of freedom is tied to, to a piece of turf, whether my yeah. turf is a motorcycle I ride around or it's my farm. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, it's amazing the draw even now of ownership of land for most Americans, and it does, it means freedom for them. 
These are the one place where if they want a dog, they can have a dog. Uh, they want to smoke a cigarette, they can smoke a cigarette. Uh, in the case of Mr. T up here in uh, uh, one of our affluent suburbs, he wants to cut down all of his trees. He can, <laughs> his trees. Uh, the right of waste is part of the land tenure. Don't like trees, cut them down. Uh, there are many circumstances where this kind of, of uh, freedom is resented, and we have all kinds of land use laws and zoning laws, ordinances. Uh, but even so, part of the reason people buy land is really the independence feeling, or at least belief, of independence that goes with having a piece of the turf for yourself. So that property rights, real property, private property, seem to be tied to this sense of liberty we have. Yes, I've always thought that. And, uh, it may be just peculiar to us, but remember that for a very long time in the United States, the existence of government and its protections uh, was only symbolic. There was not, in fact, very much government. There was not, in fact, uh, uh, any more than just a gesture. Uh, and yet, you were protected in your rights of ownership of property, real property. And so I think it's entirely understandable that um, they would prefer to think of their, their uh, freedoms uh, being derived from the real estate itself. Uh, the English, too, you know, were very, very, very strong about this, that the, the old uh, feudal system was, after all, an agricultural one was based on land holding and the, the uh, a right to life, really, to live in England before our time uh, was rooted in the right to uh, the fruits of real estate. And uh, it, it's, it's very clear when the Americans first begin that there is this huge drive to distribute the real property and to start uh, colonization on the basis of ownership of real property itself. And, and the colonies, after all, were much more generous than the federal government was for a very long time about giving land away, giving land to persons who would be willing to go out on the frontier and risk their lives uh, uh, to create farms and to create communities. Uh, when federal America comes along, they have the idea that somehow or other they're going to finance the government by land sales. Uh, then they're not very generous with uh, squatters. But in colonial America, especially Virginia, they were very generous indeed with squatters. Uh, and the squatters themselves wanted this right in order to be free, in order to exercise all of those wonderful freedoms that, of life, the dimensions of freedom inherent in the land tenure that they couldn't have in political life in a time when, when you still had property restrictions or even gross class restrictions on voting. So property was, in fact, in all those ways, freedom itself. And, and uh, the land tenure encouraged it because with a sockage, if the incidents were not met, the tenure vanished. 
And Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, uh, talking about the United States, sort of forecasts the nation of family farms when he, he says that the, since the, the tenure is free and common sockage, and the yield of the land must at least equal the, the uh, tax load, or else it won't pay to hold the land. So he says that, that it's the case uh, in the colonies that a person who gets a large tract of land very quickly will liquidate, sell to others, the amount of land he himself cannot make yield a profit. And so he uh, you know, sees, foresees in the wealth of nations that the United States is going to become a, a land of family farms. What is the most commonly misunderstood aspect of uh, the economic history of the United States? I think the most commonly misunderstood one is that it was dependent upon the abundant resources in the country. We had the abundant resources and we used them. But you know, I give you Switzerland, I give you Japan. These are countries which became immensely rich without resources. Uh, we had the resources, so we naturally exploited the resources. Well, you'd be stupid not to. Uh, but I think to suppose that we, with our river system at first and later other uh, dimensions of the transportation system, that we had to have all of these resources in the United States to get rich is just uh, to misunderstand economics. These commodities, raw materials, so on, were all for sale in the world market. On balance, has government uh, been a helper hindrance to business development in our history? Well, you have to say it's a, a uh, as Milton Friedman says, you know, you have to say it's a, 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 a good thing because without it, you would have uh, uncertainty instead of risk. And a world of uncertainty is a world in which uh, you're unlikely to have anything except the most dramatic kinds of gestures toward economic development. Government and its taxation and regulation transforms uncertainty into risk and makes it possible to really discount the future in all kinds of business activities. One always feels uh, that the cost of it, uh, especially in modern times, is, is extremely uh, uh, excessive. But remember, for most of American history, there was very little government and the cost was very low. Are we more materialistic in the 1980s than uh, our forebears were in the 1780s? No, I don't think we're materialistic at all. I mean, we've come to the point of a complete throwaway society. In the 18th century, material things mattered because they were hard to come by, difficult to get. They were treasured. That's why we've still got pieces of colonial furniture around. In our times, anyone who is, you know, even on welfare can come buy enough material goods to choke a horse. Uh, and material goods really don't count anymore. Throw away the car, throw away the furniture. If it weren't for the re increase in real estate values, I suppose we'd be throwing away the houses. So it's not a plague. People seem to think it's a plague that we're suffering from our economic freedom. No. If you want to see what it is we've been spared, you should watch China, study 
modern China where they've got their first chance to get material goods. I mean, uh, compared to that, there isn't any materialism in the United States. We really don't care much about material goods. In your uh, book, again, The Vital Few, back to that one more time, another quote. We soldier on in our bumbling way, a democracy, good and bad, wise and foolish, unquote. Would you comment on that? Well, I think sometimes it's a great tribute to this country that the economy is still there, considering the kind of government we've had. Uh, and one has faith because of this background of these deep-rooted property rights and the freedoms and so on associated with it, that no matter what the government does, the economy will survive. Uh, I, in the case of the recent stock market panic, I have nothing against the, the government uh, trying to balance the budget by raising taxes or cutting expenditures, but why do it now? I mean, they've had all the time to do it when the economy was expanding. Now, when it would cripple the economy to do it, Congress proposes to raise taxes and, and uh, cut the deficit by that and, and cutting uh, expenditures. What this is most likely to do is make the gross national product a lot smaller than it would be otherwise. This is an example of, of you know, fundamental governmental incompetence, in my opinion. However, uh, knowing our history, one knows that we will survive it. That's what I mean. Well, I would uh, ask you to uh, help us as we leave with a real tough question, to which obviously there is no um, dependable answer, but I'd like you to speculate. Have we passed the golden age of American history? No, I don't think so. Um, I think a hundred years ago people feared that we would would lose our moorings because people were coming in from uh, you know Russia, uh, Germany, Poland, Greece, Turkey, coming in from places that had no understanding of freedom, no understanding of property, no understanding of democracy, and once they became the majority, we would be swamped, and we would get I don't know czarism or whatever. But what happened, you see, is, is, the, is people are smart enough to want to go for the better thing. And so we don't think that anymore, but then you heard this kind of nonsense again with regard to uh, Latin American immigrants and people coming in from Asia. But I notice in my classrooms that these people who crawled ashore 10 or 15 years ago from countries that had never had a scintilla of democracy are the ones who understand it best they understand the system the best, and they're sitting there at Northwestern University getting a tremendous education because of their understanding. I think that to suppose, just as in technology, that the technology we've got is somehow mature, means that you have no understanding of history at all, and the notion that we somehow have passed the country's uh, greatest moment, I think, uh, is the result of thinking about the institutions in terms which are not relevant. This is a multinational nation, if you can understand such a crazy concept. 
And there's no evidence that the new people coming in are not as great or even greater believers in the benefits of the system as the ones who've gone before. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.